All right. So last week I had mentioned you know, one of the areas or um, places that Christians have differed or maybe fallen into some errors in the past, and, and I referenced it. And so we could call that uh, Christian perfectionism. So none of this is in your notes. If you want the notes, just let me know. So a lot of what we're doing today is going to be uh, as, uh, looking at it historically, and then but then talking about, and we'll talk about it practically too. So this, you know, Christians have reacted against this claim to any kind of perfectionism, um, short of glorification. So throughout the, the centuries, Christians as a whole have continued to maintain that we are not going to be perfect. Uh, in our spiritual walk until we become glorified. But that's not to say that there haven't been Christians who haven't made statements that would suggest that, that there is a sense of perfection that, that you can attain. Um, so in 1605, uh, Jacob Arminius said that no man can keep the law perfectly according to the full rigor of its demands, but Christians can attain perfection according to the standards uh, of God, as long as they are empowered by Christ's grace. So he taught that, um, well, we can't keep the law perfectly, but there is uh, this perfection that we can achieve that's made possible by Christ's grace. And so that doctrine was really sort of built off of uh, over the over the years. So John Wesley comes along and begins to teach that Christians could obtain uh, some sort of perfectionism. It's important to be fair to him to understand what he meant by that. Um, he didn't mean that we would be free from ignorance or we'd be free from mistakes or a weakness of mind. He believed that, of course, we're going to make mistakes. There's going to be ignorance that we have. There's, there's just going to be errors that we make. So that's not the perfectionism that Wesley was talking about. But what Wesley meant was that we could have a perfection in, in which we could be free from voluntarily disobeying God's laws. So we could, we could be perfect in the sense of loving God with all our heart so that every evil temper is destroyed and every thought and word and work springs from and is conducted to that end by the pure love of God and our neighbor. So what Wesley looked at and what he taught was Christians could obtain this perfectionism in their love for God and neighbor. Um, and he denied that all Christians do and must commit sin as long as they live. He said, we don't have to accept that. So building from Wesley then, uh, further people took that even further than Wesley did. So it kind of started with Wesley in that sense of what he meant by this perfectionism, and uh, it was really, um, it really grew from that point. So it's, it's this idea in, you know, this Methodist tradition um, that you can have this perfect love of God and, and others there. And the arguments for it come along these lines. Um, so first, God would not command holiness, perfection, and blamelessness in this life if it were impossible. So they look at passages such as Genesis 17, 1, um, and 
Matthew uh, 5.48, which are these calls for it, and they would say that, well, if God calls for this blamelessness, this, this perfectness, and it's not possible to do that, well, that's not fair. You know, how could God demand something that's not even possible for us to achieve? So it must be possible for us. Secondly, uh, they say that God would not promise full salvation and holiness without blemish if it wasn't possible. So they'll look at passages such as Psalm 119, 1 through 3, or 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 to 24, or 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, uh, to say that, again, if God wouldn't call us to strive for this if it wasn't possible. And then third, they would say that Scripture provides examples of this in Enoch, Noah, Job, Barnabas, and others. And so they'll look back at places like that where it talks about these people were blameless, uh, they walked with God, and they'll say, see, you know, it's possible. And here's some examples. So what do you think about that? Um, how would you maybe respond to that? David was a man after God's own heart. And yet he sinned and readily admitted it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there, yeah. So there's an example of. I, I pretty often sin myself. <laughs> so a couple of responses we could make to this. Um, one is that just because God God commands it doesn't mean that we're necessarily capable of it on our own. Uh, so, I mean, God commands that all of mankind follow him and obey him, but we know that we are not capable of that apart from his work within us. I mean, if we were capable of that, we wouldn't need Jesus. You know, anybody could do it. So scripture would, scripture would teach that apart from God's spirit empowering us and, and changing us and, and working in us, we can't, we can't fulfill God's command, even though we're commanded to do that. So, Romans 3, uh, 9 to 18, point that out, that there's none, none good, no one. Romans 8, uh, 6 to 8, continue to point that out. You know, we, we cannot do this uh, apart from His Spirit. So that's, that's one response there, that just because we're commanded to do it doesn't mean we can do it. Um, secondly, uh, God promises full salvation from the presence of sin only in the life to come. So... The full freedom from sin will only come in the life to come, not in this current life. And you can look at uh, Hebrews 12, 23, for example, or 1 John 3, uh, 2 to 3, you know, to see that. Now, in the present life, what the Lord promises is deliverance from the power of sin, but not from the presence of sin. So Romans uh, 6, 14 so in this life, we have to continue to confess our sins and pray for forgiveness. First uh, John 1, 9, we have to lean on Christ's death and intercession when we do sin. First um, John 2, 1 to 2, and then we have to pursue holiness, 12, uh, Hebrews 12, 14. And then third, when the Bible does talk about, you know, when the Bible uses this language of perfect, it's important to know what, we, what it means by that. Um, so perfect is not it's it's not referring to perfect in the sense of sinless absolutely doing nothing wrong 
It refers to uh, perfect as um, this completeness. <coughs> so uh, like a life of godliness, not, uh, not, a, not perfectionism. So it can be easy, you know, when we get tripped up and, and think every time you see that word perfect, if you think it means completely free from all sin and, and never doing anything wrong, that's not what it's referring to. So, for example, even those people they reference, such as Noah, still had their sin, just like Brent mentioned. Uh, you see that in Genesis 6, 9. Um, so Noah got drunk, uh, Genesis 9, 21. So even though Noah is blameless, he's described as being blameless, he wasn't perfect. The Lord even rebukes Job for contending against his ways. And again, at the beginning of Job, God spends a lot of time talking about how Job was blameless and walking in his ways. Um, Job himself repented. So why would Job have needed to repent if he was perfect? Uh, Paul confronts Peter um, for being at fault in an occasion, uh, Galatians 2, 11 to 16. So Peter is, in many senses, walking with the Lord, but Peter's certainly not perfect right there. So it's, um, it's helpful to remember that, that just because, just when you see the word perfect or blameless, that's not talking about um, this perfectionism, this freedom from sin. But it is important to know that even though we reject perfectionism, we still uh, want to warn against, there can still be this spiritual elitism that perfectionism teaches or promotes. Um, so those who would hold to perfectionism would have to be careful that it doesn't turn into this, um, look at us, you know, we're the, we're the ones that are doing it right. Everybody just needs to be like us. And that, that's kind of what it can turn into. It's like those other, those other Christians down there, they, they believe that Christians can still sin, but we don't sin. You know, we might commit errors or mistakes, but we certainly don't sin like that. So there can be these different levels there that it, that it promotes. Being real biblically means that we have to face the ugliness of our remaining sin. But we want to resist compromise. So just because we're saying, you know, we're not going to be perfect in this life doesn't mean we have to be, just like we heard today, doesn't mean we have to compromise and, and say, well, I'm just going to give up then. I don't have to strive for Christ-likeness or, uh, or, you know, what God has in store for us. We still want to pursue holiness. We still want our prayer to be, uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So before we move on from that, any questions or thoughts with this uh, teaching of perfectionism? I don't know that you necessarily hear that. Um, I mean, it's not pushed as much, so much in books or uh, teachings today. Um, I mean, we're not in the Wesleyan tradition here at this church. Some of you may have come from that background, so you may, be, you may have heard that a little bit more. Um, but you still pick on it, up on it, uh, maybe in, in other denominations, you know, without maybe getting into that so much. Uh, but any questions or uh, thoughts related to the perfectionism aspect? And okay, so kind of piggybacking off that is this modern second day blessing theology. So,
So what, uh, this cr- Christian perfectionism then has also led to a modern second-day blessing theology. And what that teaches is that Christians are to seek a further blessing after their conversion that elevates them to a higher level of spirituality. So I think I'd given you the diagram the other week. Um, and, and that's basically, you know, here's conversion right here. And so you're going on, but you're waiting for that zap. Uh, they wouldn't call it a zap. They would call it a second blessing. And when you hit that second blessing, when you get that, that's really what's going to propel you to, w- to where God wants. So, you know, your, your goal is to be praying for that and just waiting for that and, and hoping for that. And you're kind of not there yet until you, until you really get this second blessing. So the, the Methodist writers in particular um, have written a lot about this. Uh, they promoted what was known, came to be known as the holiness movement. Um, have, you, have any of you heard the name of Charles Finney? <clears throat> okay. Charles Finney is, is famous for what you may have heard more popular, altar calls. Anyone heard that? So Finney was, was one of those proponents of, he was really the one that helped make the altar call what the altar call became. Um, so what, what these teachers taught was they connected the doctrine of perfectionism with a crisis, crisis experience of the second blessing. They called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you may have heard that, uh, especially when you get into the Pentecostal circles. You know, where, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? You know, it, be, it becomes that. Uh, it gained a, a big, a wider following, even through um, the ministries of some folks you may have heard of, such as uh, Dwight Moody. Um, and I'm not saying that he was necessarily uh, in error in everything, but he certainly picked up on some of these aspects. So Finney, for example, was one of the earliest to teach this doctrine that you're waiting for a second blessing. And this is what's key to your sanctification, is that, that second blessing, that baptism of the Spirit. So he says, uh, believers must yield themselves to the Holy Spirit and thus receive him by faith after their conversion. The promise in the new covenant of the sanctifying Holy Spirit was fulfilled at Pentecost, but Christians must individually appropriate by faith. Okay, so yes, uh, there's a sense in which we see the covenant of the Holy Spirit being given at Pentecost, but for you and your personal life, well, that, that comes later. That comes at this second blessing here that you have to get by your faith. And so this um, spirit baptism language was used to describe this, on, this overpowering experience of God. And so Finney talks about it. This, this is a, an experience that he felt um, after his conversion in 1821, an experience that caused him and another man to bellow and laugh uncontrollably. And so Finney writes, um, he, he writes about this, you know, it's in the sense of this is what motivates, this is what helps you not to not sin. So you can really boil this kind of down to the second day blessing. You're looking for an experience. You'll know it when you get the experience because of what you feel inside. And that's really what propels you and then ab- enables you to live a life of this perfectionism. Now, related to that, in some senses, uh, would be known as the higher life movement.
So that came along uh, in the 1800s. A lot of this has roots in the Quaker movement. And the, the Quakers were um, big into this. But they would really uh, capture the whole view is, is all of sanctification is received by faith in Christ alone. And so um, in this higher life movement, sanctification is not a hard battle that involves our human striving and effort, but it's an experience of constant victory by faith. <clears throat> so one writer says, I must freely own that this is my continuous experience day by day as I walk in this way of faith and holiness, wonder and praise fill my heart for heavenly communion, inward purity, victory over the world, abounding peace, and the known presence of Jesus in my soul. He claimed that temptations no longer rose up from within his heart, but only from Satan outside, and that as a Christian, he now had the power to quench all of Satan's fiery darts. So I'm, I'm pointing this out because where this is going to take us is into some of today's movements that you see, right? So the things that you see, you may not even know they're out there today, all right? But there's nothing new, okay? They all have their roots. They all go back to something. So a lot of these... You know, it's helpful to know the history of them so that you can see over time how things were taken from one place and taken from another place and kind of brought together to, to where we have them today. So you can probably tell where we're going to go with this higher life movement. Uh, it initially starts off as um, there's really not much we do in it. This is, this is just something all God does. It's no, it no longer involves hard work and effort on our part. It's, it's just all a work of God. So where that led then uh, is what's called as the early Keswick movement. So these folks eventually came together in this movement and that was in the late 1800s right there. And they wanted, you know, their goal was to, um, to call Christians to this higher level of consecration, to, to call them to receive the Holy Spirit and to launch them into missions and service. So they had a lot of good intentions with this. They wanted to motivate Christians. Um, so they came together. Uh, Amy Carmi Carmichael, uh, a famous missionary, she was connected to this movement. Um, James Hudson Taylor, another missionary. Some of you may have heard of Andrew Murray. Anyone read his any of his books? You may yeah, just be just be on the name for that because he's he's fairly popular, um, and he's written some books that Christians latch onto and, and like a lot of ideas from, but they don't necessarily realize the the baggage that comes with it, so to speak. So what they taught in this Keswick view is pretty simple. It's like it's this. So there's only two things. They're very simple. Surrender and faith. Let go and let God. Anybody hear that phrase before? Let go and let God. All we need to do now, oh, I just realized, like, I've got it. I finally got it. I just need to let go and let God. That's where this comes from, right here, this movement, which has its history so you go back to all these other movements and people. Now, these teachings um, 
today still show up, although they've taken different forms. Um, and we'll talk about those maybe a little bit later here. Um, now, just another, maybe in another sphere, not so much related to this, but... Uh, just kind of in, in another area. Um, so Lewis Schaefer, anyone heard his name? Lewis Schaefer? He was a, a professor. Um, he taught that uh, people consisted of three groups, natural men, carnal Christians, and spiritual Christians. So natural, the natural man, the spiritual man and this category of the carnal Christian. Now, has any, any of you ever heard that kind of language before? Especially this of the carnal Christian. So that, that's pretty popular in circles still. You know, you have this idea of like, okay, here's the, you know, here's, this would be, they would say this would be unsaved, right? The natural man, that's the unsaved person. But here among the saved, there would be two categories. The carnal Christian, that would be the Christian who's living like this person, but he's really a Christian. He's just kind of living like him. And then you have the elite Christian, you know. So the goal is, is to be here, but you can still be here and still be a Christian. You know, you don't want to be there, but, but there's two categories of Christians right there. Um, and so the carnal Christian he taught lived on the same plane as the natural one, uh, the natural person, but he's been born again by the Holy Spirit. So that that became a, a fairly big controversy um, over the years. You know, is that is that even helpful? Is it even right to to speak of someone as being a carnal Christian? And there's many reasons why that's not helpful to think of it that way. So if you want to get your Bibles there, let's look at Romans 7, uh, 14 to 25. We're going to be taking a look at Romans 7 here to unpack this. Okay, could I have somebody read um, in Romans 7 there, verses, uh, just say 13 to 25, please? Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. But what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Uh, 325, please. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have desired to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find that this law, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man am I! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Thank you. So this, um, of course, is one of those good passages in Romans here, one of those difficult ones, because the question is, you know, who is Paul talking about? Is he talking about uh, believers in this passage, or is he talking about someone who's not a believer? Because he's describing this wrestling, right? He's, he's talking about this turmoil within. I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. You know, so is, is Paul describing uh, a believer in his experience, or is he referring to an unbeliever? And you know, you commentators are, are on both sides of this. Some believe he's referring to unbelievers. Some believe he's referring to um, believers here. So, I mean, he, he makes some things here that are hard to be consistent with, the, you know, those who would be Christians, like um, to be sold under sin. That's the language of spiritual slavery or uh, given to the power. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, some things in here make it, yeah, can, can make it challenging, um, certainly. So, Romans, uh, this section here is interpreted either to refer to an unbeliever, going back to verses 7 through 13, because that's what he's been talking about in 7 through 13 there, um, or uh, to, and, but others have taken it to refer to a carnal Christian. But, but I don't want to go that route either. So I think the, the best way to think about this passage is, is not that he's referring to a carnal Christian who lives in a state of spiritual defeat, but that he's describing a believer um, who's in the same spiritual state as described in Romans 8. And so there's a number of reasons why I think this would, this would be the best. So first he describes, you know, Paul describes his present experience as a believer in Christ. So he's using this, these words, um, I am, I do. He, he presents himself as a man who trusts in Christ for salvation. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. So it, it seems to be that the way he's describing it is this is his present experience, not a, not a past experience. Um, and so he's, he's kind of shifted from using language of his past experience to a present experience. So that would seem to indicate he's talking about his current experience as a believer. But the language that trips people up a lot when you think about this category of carnal Christian is it seems like you almost read some of that in there. 
So if you look at verse 14, for example, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Or another, another way to translate that, but I am, I mean, some would say, but I am carnal, sold under sin. So it, it trips people up there because they think, oh, see, here's Paul talking about that. He's just he's describing a carnal Christian there. But in response to that, that doesn't, you know, to be carnal or to be fleshly is not the same thing as being in the flesh and lacking the spirit. So that language of carnal, it doesn't always mean or it doesn't have to mean the person is not saved. It just means that they can be fleshly in some sense. So there's, there's a difference here. Um, whereas in the unsaved Christian, you're a slave to sin. You can't do anything but sin. For the, saved, for the Christian, though, there's a freedom from that. Paul is able to not give in to those things. So this man that Paul is describing here loves God's law and he serves it willingly. Now, in verses 14 to 25, um, Paul is talking about these desires. Uh, He's talking about his inner man. It's no longer a willing slave of sin, but he says, I myself serve the law of God in verse 25. So he's distinguishing himself or between himself and the sin that dwells in him in verse 17. So in verse 17, he says, now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin who dwells within me. So he's making this distinction there between himself and the sin that dwells within him. The sin that dwells within him is waging war against his spirits, against his mind that loves God's law. So if this passage were talking about an unsaved person, you know, what makes it difficult is it can sound like that they have this uh, will that is inclined toward obeying God's law without having been made new by the Holy Spirit. And that's a big problem, right? Because if, if we have a mind that's naturally inclined to the, thing that, the things that God wants apart from His Spirit then it really diminishes the need for God's grace. And it really makes it as if anybody could, could do it. It's just a matter of whether them wanting to or not. And so that's, that's not what Paul is teaching there. Um, if you go, I mean, even if you jump to Romans 8 and verse 7, he makes it very clear there in verse 7 there in the next chapter, uh, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, I mean, Romans 8 right there makes it really hard for us to read this passage in light of someone who's being, in in terms of an unbeliever, or even a carnal Christian right there. Um, Third, we clearly see this conflict of Paul's desires and holy desires and sinful desires. 
All right, Every, everybody agrees with that, that there's these desires that are clashing. I mean, you just see that language all over in there. I want to do the right thing, but I'm, but I'm like not having, I'm not able to do it here, or, or I, I can't do it here. You know, it's, you, you just read these clash of these, of the flesh and the spirit right there. And, and that, what I want to emphasize is a characteristic of a true Christian. So this description here finds its counterpart in Galatians 5.17. Can somebody read us Galatians 5.17, please? Because that passage clearly is, I mean, well, it's describing, yeah, you'll, you'll see it when you read it. But Galatians 5.17. I can do that. Okay. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Yeah, thank you. And so that passage very clearly is talking about the believer. Um, the believer has the Holy Spirit, but he's engaged in this ongoing struggle against remaining sin, right? So Galatians 5.17 is talking about a believer there who, who's got this struggle going on. He can't give in to the flesh. He's got to yield himself to the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul is laying out here. And you know, that's, that's Paul's struggle in Romans 7, 14 to 25. That's what's going on there. Um, even James uh, talks about this internal struggle. He says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Peter mentions this struggle as well. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So in other words, it's the normal experience of a Christian to be um, in turmoil in this sense, right? To feel this, this inner fight within, like I want to do the right thing, that's where my mind is set, but ooh, <coughs> there's, some, there's some places where it's not being lived out the way that it should be. So that's not a mark of... You know, that's not to say, okay, well, you must be an unsafe person. Only an unsafe person would have that. Or, or even you're just a carnal Christian. No, that's a, a natural experience of, of the saved person. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says that the sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So Christians throughout the centuries have continued to, to reemphasize this. Is, this is a normal part of our Christian walk. Romans uh, 7 to 8, both as two chapters... Um, don't have a transition from defeat to victory. So even that transition there at the end of in 725, where Paul says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's not... Um, that's not like at that moment, oh yeah, Paul becomes a Christian at that moment. Like I was defeated, I was just a carnal person, I was unsaved, and then here we get to verse 25, and whoop, the lights come on, and, and now I become a Christian, and now we go into chapter 8, and, and now I'm a Christian. That's, that's not how we understand those two passages, those two chapters right there. What he's saying um, 
is that what he said, what Paul is saying in Romans seven is that the Christian overcomes his his or her sin by faith in Christ while still remaining in the state of inward <coughs> conflict and frustration. So I mean, I'm thankful that Paul put Romans seven in the Bible because if we don't have Romans seven in the Bible, I think all of us are probably thinking, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble," because I'm not. I don't know. Is, are there other passages maybe that, sure, there's other passages, right? But, it, but it'd be like a, a, this big chunk that's missing. And we'd be thinking, boy, I'm, I don't know if this experience is biblical or not. This fighting, you know, this wrestling with these inner sinful desires that I still have. If I'm really a Christian, should I even be struggling like that at all? Uh, Romans 7 answers that. Yeah, that's normal. So Paul is, is longing uh, for deliverance there in verse 24. And that's what he's looking forward to. This one day when um, the solution will come, when the Holy Spirit will raise the believer from, from the dead to glorious life at the resurrection. Now currently, the Holy Spirit leads us to conquer indwelling sin, not by turning us or giving us this new spiritual state of ease, but leading us into battle against the deeds of the body. Okay, so maybe that's, and that's where I think one of the errors has Christians have fallen into over the centuries has come in, is that Christians think that, okay, when you're saved, God's work is to bring you into a state of spiritual ease, and you have this relief from this turmoil that Paul is describing here. You know, you shouldn't be feeling that anymore. You shouldn't be struggling like that anymore. I wish that, and I don't want to say that because that's not the way God designed it. I don't want to wish something that God didn't want, right? But, but there's kind of a selfish part of us that does wish it to be true. Like, yes, I, it would be nice if we could, the moment we were saved, we no longer had this conflict within us. And everything that God wanted us to do, we just did it. <laughs> Never had any problems. But that's not the way uh, God has designed it. Not at this current moment, anyway. So rather, um, God, God works by leading us to fight the remaining sin. And, and that's the, the role of the Spirit. So the influences of the Spirit don't release us from the painful struggles of Romans 7, but the Spirit causes us to groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. You see that in chapter 8. So fifth... Uh, Paul's frustration in Romans 7, it reflects his holy ambition for perfect love, not total, not total failure to obey. So what Paul is, is really frustrated about is he wants to love God well. And, and he's frustrated because of the indwelling sin within him that, in a sense, uh, hinders that obedience right there. But Paul is not... Um, Paul is not uh, in a place where he's like, I just can't please God at all. I just can't do anything right. I'm just a total failure here. Uh, everything I'm doing, I'm sinning in. That's not where he's at. But he just, he realizes like, I want to love God better. And because of the indwelling sin within me, that is a struggle. So when Paul says in verse 19, for example, here, for the good that I would do, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. He's not saying that he's continually engaged in sinful behaviors and never does good deeds. That's not what he's saying. Um, 
he's talking about the law uh, really in terms of internal matters here. Um, so he's looking at these desires that are going on within inside of him. So he's, he's describing his frustrated desire to live in the perfect love and to cast out all sinful lust. He willed that the love of God should fill his heart and prevail in it to the most intense degree that his heart should be holy, spiritual, and heavenly in all its thoughts and affections, that such vain thoughts, sin, and imperfect and sinful imperfections should never hold him short of such perfect attainment in its duty. Okay, so, so what Paul is describing here is he's, he's not a person who's continually, habitually, ongoing, giving into these repeated patterns of sin. No, he's struggling with, he wants to love God well, and he's realizing that he can't do that the way that he would like to do that. So Paul, if we could, if we could really summarize this, Paul doesn't know of a category of a Christian who's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Paul doesn't know of this category because what the argument is is like this category and this category are the same except, you know, except this person was um, converted. And, and Paul's like, no, there's not two categories of Christians. There's, there's only one category right here. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. So... We do want to consider, you know, just for a minute before we go on to the next thing of there, there is a danger of calling ourselves a Christian if we're not walking in obedience to God. Um, and by that, again, like we've said today, I don't mean perfect obedience. Uh, but, but you have a place like First uh, John 2, verses 3 and 4. Hereby we do know that we know him if we, com- if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there'd be a, a dangerous place, you know, if we believe that you could be a carnal Christian and live in disobedience to God and his word, but still be, still be considered a Christian. I just, um, any questions so far with that? with these categories of, you know, this idea of a carnal Christian? So before we move on and then go to something a little bit different, let's just circle back to that second blessing Christianity, if you remember that. The second, remember, the second blessing was when you were um, looking for that experience, that zap, um, or, you know, it, it was kind of this theory of, of let go and let God. So let's just talk about that a little bit more before we move to something different right here. And this, this helps us as we understand, as you guys understand sanctification, too. So we'll just we'll do a little recap here. So as you're thinking about your sanctification again, here's a few things to, to remember. Um, so first, the new birth produces a new life. 
So just remember in that, that when Christ works within you, when He regenerates you, that produces a, a new life there. And we would deny those truths if we said that, um, that this, that a new birth did not produce spiritual fruit. We would be denying a lot of the things that God teaches there. So this is, this is a, a, a huge, amazing work of God, this new birth. I mean, it's, it's an act of God. He, he makes us new. And so we don't want to dishonor God by saying that since even though God has made us new, it doesn't show up in any, any new ways of living. You know, what's that say about God? It says you're not very good at your job. So William Hendrickson says, uh, grace dethrones sin. It destroys sin's lordship. So we don't want to say anything like, um, such as um, saving grace permits sin to reign so that a person can be saved without Christ being seated on the throne of his life. So I know over the years, you know, it's, People have, have fallen into that trap, or you know, there's been that discussion of what does this look like in our lives, um, with in terms of the lordship of Christ, right? So we have to we have to be careful with statements that would suggest that a, a, the new birth um, doesn't result in any kind of lordship of Christ. That that we can be saved uh, without Christ being um, in control of our lives. So that's, that's the first point, you know, is this new birth produces new life. Um, secondly, so all in Christ are justified and sanctified. Okay, so all people in Christ are justified and sanctified. There's not some who are just justified but not sanctified. These, these go together. If you're in Christ, you're both of those, justified and sanctified. We've talked about the differences between sanctification and justification. So let's just make sure that we... I'll bring that back up again. Okay, so you help me... You teach me justification is what... Can you give me a definition of justification or understanding of justification? To know God. What was that? To know God. Oh, it certainly includes that. Yeah, it certainly includes that. Mm -hmm. Being legally declared righteous. Good. Yep, that legal declaration. Yep. Okay. And then as we've been talking about those, sanctification. So let's just make sure we understand that. What is sanctification? It's more of an internal condition. Okay. So we've got that, that internal condition. Okay. Mm-hmm. Being set apart. There you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. So set apart for Christ. 
And there's one other aspect that we could say. We, you know, we've got the inward condition. Set apart and we talked about those two aspects of sanctification. So this referring to the positional Remember the other aspect? It's progressive. Progressive, yep. Yep. So set apart and, and being changed into Christ likeness. So there's the progressive. Okay. So hopefully by the time you you know, by the time you're done here, you really understand the differences between justification and sanctification. They're both very, very important. We need them both, but they're not the same. So this was one, a one-time, if you go back to your notes from last week, this was one time, whereas this is ongoing. Uh, so third, no one in Christ is a slave of sin. Okay. No one in Christ is a slave of sin. So this is what sanctification, you know, what we're talking about here are the truths about sanctification. So nobody in Christ is a slave of sin. So if you make statements like, um, I just couldn't help it, uh, I had no power over that, it's, you know, we're not, it's not lining up with that, is it? So I understand that the feeling can be like, I feel like I have no power over this, but that's not the reality. So I like to, I think it's helpful here, you know, the difference maybe between um, in, uh, enslaved versus entangled. So somebody who is enslaved by sin, that would not fit our understanding of the Christian. It can't, right? Because the power of sin has been broken. How can they be enslaved to it again? But as Christians, we can become entangled. So, you know, maybe in your house, you're, it's late at night, and you're, you got the lights out, and you're just you're walking down the hallway or something, and your feet get tripped up in the rug or something, and you fall down. You know, as Christians, we can do that. You can fall into things that can entangle you, but this idea of being enslaved by sin doesn't, uh, doesn't fit the biblical understanding of it. So even you know, in the category of addictions, for example, um, I, there's still, there still is distinction between the two of them. The unsaved person is enslaved. They're, they're, again, they're a slave to, to all their sin right there. Christians can be entangled by sin, but they can't say that... Uh, I'm just stuck in this. There, there's no way I could possibly get out of it. Like, there's no hope for me in this. You know, I, I can't help it anymore. That, that would not line up with uh, the biblical understanding. Then fourth, um, Christians don't need a second blessing. So we don't need a second blessing. That's good news for you today. Now, the good news is, um, if you do want a second blessing, uh, I've got some available. 
for $99.99. So see me after class and we can get you that second blessing. Brett will be helping me with that. Um, but you don't need one. So the, the scripture doesn't teach that you need a second blessing that's distinct from your conversion. What, what it teaches is we need um, a steady walk with God. You know, every day requires new grace from God. That's what the scripture teaches. Not this second occasion where you get some kind of special change or zap. So you've already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. When you were saved, you've been baptized. You don't need, a, you don't need another one. Uh, it's our duty to be filled with the Spirit, but just like being filled with God's Word, it's not, it's not, we're not entering into another higher level, another greater spiritual state. It's just the pattern by which we become more and more holy. You know, So just like being filled with God's Word, that's not a one-time thing. It's not like you read through the Bible in a year last year maybe, or this year, whatever, and it's like, now, now I got it all. I'm completely full. I don't have any room anymore. That's not how it works. There's a need for that continual filling, just like the Spirit. But, but none of this is bringing, bringing you to like a new level. And that's the good news. And then fifth, uh, sanctification comes by um, our faith and work. Or should I say, includes. So we, we do want to be clear that we that we are sanctified by faith in Christ. It's it's Jesus who sets us apart. It's Jesus who is changing us. But as we've been saying, it includes our faith and work. So the the principle of let go and let God. It really puts, puts faith against, against our efforts in a, in a way that the Bible doesn't do. And that's very unhelpful. It's like you have to choose between the two of them. Well, I either have to trust God or I have to do, you know, or I have to strive to be holy. Well, when is it? I don't know. What am I supposed to do? I, I got to pick between the two. You don't have to pick between the two. You do both of those. Trust God, let God have his things and carry out your, uh, the, the things that he has for you. So Paul doesn't just tell his readers to surrender so that the Spirit carries them along in holiness. He gives a lot of practical commands. I mean, just look at all the commands throughout the, the New Testament. They're all over the place. So Paul never says, work out your justification. We talked about why that's not the case. We, we can't do anything with that. But he does say, work out your salvation or your sanctification. The second part of that, let go and let God, it really uh, demeans the sovereignty of God, as if God can't work unless we give him permission, right? So what, what in a sense, what we're saying there is, is like, God, God wants to do something in your life, but, you know, Lori, until you let go and let him, he's just kind of off in the corner, just hoping and praying you'll come around. You know, God doesn't need your permission to work in your life, thankfully. He doesn't need my permission. He's going he's gonna to be at work. Um, God works our willing. And so if we reverse that order too easily, uh, it, it becomes an occasion for spiritual pride. So there's a danger of speaking of our sanctification as it basically comes from our own efforts or initiative. 
And we don't want to do that. So we'll end there for today. Um, what we have yet, uh, just next week we've got a few practical things, like how do you actually pursue sanctification? We'll get very practical with that. What does that look like in your life? And then uh, we've got two more topics yet, um, perseverance and, and glorification. Yeah, perseverance and glorification. And I, I want to save time for your questions too. So the last day, uh, which is like December 7th or 8th or whatever that Sunday is, I, I really would love to hear this be for you. You know, what are your questions? It doesn't have to be related to this. We can talk about any, anything theology-wise, okay? Not to say we have all the answers, but it'd be a fun discussion. So... You can come uh, with those questions. So that'll mean that we'll finish up really the, the, the material next Sunday. And then the final week will be questions. It'll be kind of a ask anything. Sound good? Okay. Thank you, everybody.